Hello and welcome to episode 266 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now on today's episode, I have a returning guest on one of my favourite bands that I've ever listened to since I was at school. Yes, I'm thrilled to announce that I'm joined by Andy Kearns from the amazing band Therapy. We get to sit down and talk all about the band's brand new album, Hard Cold Fire. This is on Marshall Records and honestly, it's half an hour of just pure anthems and exactly what you expect from the amazing band Therapy that have been going since 1989. So much history, so much to talk about and we get through loads on today's interview. Again, it's one of my favourite interviews and Andy is such an amazing guest and that interview will be coming up in just a couple of minutes time. But just before we get there, let's touch base and talk about episode 265. I was joined by Kevin from the awesome band Crownlands. This band are only new to me, but I haven't stopped listening to them for a long time. It still blows my mind that this band are a two-piece, but I've seen so many people checking out this episode and now going on and checking out this band. It's amazing to see and the ultimate compliment. So thanks to each and every one of you that took the time to listen. And please, if you still haven't gone and checked out the band, please do because they will blow your mind. But today it's all about therapy. But just before I hit that play button and let you hear that interview, let's give a big shout out to Richer Sounds. They're the main sponsor of this podcast and because of those guys I get to do two or three episodes every week. I get to host the podcast on all these different directories and it's because of those guys. So if you're in the market for a new TV, cinema surround sound system, a new stereo to listen to therapy on, check out richersounds.com and you will not regret it. There's only one thing left to do now and that's to get to my interview with me and the amazing Andy from the awesome band Therapy. So here's me and Andy talking all things music. So Andy, thanks for joining me again on the Mark and Me podcast. You're very welcome. Good to see you again. It's really good to see you, my friend. And a lot's happened since we last saw each other. Um, obviously, the world got taken over with COVID. And uh, I, I was worried for every band out there, to be honest, because there was a moment when all the emails I got was gigs being cancelled and festivals not happening. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Bands were hit the hardest because if you're an accountant, you can go and work from home. If you're a doctor, you could still work. How did you cope having two years of kind of not being able to do what you've done for so many years? At the time, I coped very well. I, you know, I think myself, Michael from the band were quite sanguine about it. I know Neil, the drummer in the band, Neil Cooper, he struggled a little bit. But I think people seem to, people that I know in bands seem to go one of two ways. When they got the news through, all of a sudden they thought, right, I've got to write five albums and a book and do it all tomorrow. <laughs> it's so true. Tomorrow. Or other people thought, do you know what? This might be a good time to kind of take a step out and do something a bit different. And I kind of went down the, um, what Nick Cave used to do, because I remember reading years ago that Nick Cave used to to beat procrastination. Every morning he would get up at eight on a suit, go to he had a basement office with a piano, a guitar and a stereo. And he would sit there, I think, from nine to four. And some days he would write lots, and other days he wouldn't write anything. So I got a little timetable up every morning. I went out for a run. And then I went into the garage where I have all my, my amps and the music. And I thought, 
I'm going to challenge myself. So I got a book by the, uh, the jazz guitarist Wes Montgomery of some of his licks and some of his solos, which is incredibly hard to play. And I would start out playing Wes Montgomery for 30 minutes just to teach myself something different. And then I would go, right, where am I going to go from here? And at four o'clock, I would come back in. Uh, and if I was bored and I couldn't get any ideas after playing the Wes Montgomery stuff, I would listen to music uh, and read books and maybe whatever little TV show and watch some films but something that was related to the music to inspire me. And that was actually something similar to Michael McKeegan, what he was doing as well. And we ended up after two years with about 26 songs written because of this routine. <laughs> I think that's really good and inspiring to hear because you are right. Some people just like, I, yeah, you are so true because some people I've spoken to in bands were like, I got 60 songs written and I took a, I, I took a course in filmmaking and, and I'm like, Christ, like, did you not have any time out? But then other people have kind of stood back and reevaluated if they want the band anymore, you know, cause it's mm. kind of a, a pause button. But I think surely for you as well, when you now have that opportunity to get back on the road and do shows, you kind of will never take a gig for granted because it could have been your last ever gig or last ever festival. Cause I remember when it caught the download festival, it was canceled two years running. I honestly did think to myself, maybe there won't be a festival again. Mm. I was having that conversation with people, people that I knew that were fellow musicians and friends of mine. And I actually got friends of mine that were music fans, but weren't in the band. You know, people that were friends of my wife's friends texting me going, Will, this, will there ever be any gigs? Can you, are you asking my opinion as a guitar player in a three-piece middling kind of noise rock punk band? Would I have any idea if music was going to stop? And it was, uh, people panicked an awful lot. I mean, I'm quite odd about it. I actually quite enjoyed the Omega Man aspect of it. You know, I live in Cambridge and I would sometimes walk into Cambridge City Centre from the little village I live in outside. I'd walk down the Cam River on a towpath and there'd be times when I wouldn't see another soul and I just had my headphones on and I absolutely loved it. Maybe that makes me odd. But no, I, I'm the same. I uh, I could go into town and it'd be like, I thought I was on the set of 28 Days Later. I was like, where the yeah. fuck is everyone? This is eerie. But do you know what? I like the peace. I like the quiet. No one's hassling me. I'm like, this is quite nice. Yeah. And it did make me appreciate. I mean, I, I must admit, we... The, the album, the last album we did was a, a best of recorded at Abbey Road and it went top 40 and we were we had a book coming out that was getting um, good previous occasions. So we, we were meant to be doing this huge UK tour in bigger venues and that all got delayed and rescheduled. And initially I know that some of our management was worried about maybe the momentum would go, you know, because we we'd built this up after the last album, Cleave. But we were on, when we went out to the UK to tour, we had... We were absolutely packed the Manchester Ritz, which is the biggest gig we had done in Manchester in years. And, you know, it was, the, I think, the second or third gig of the UK tour. And myself and Michael were in the dressing room and we took a little walk out. There was a little door you could sneak into the balcony with, you know, look, and the place was round. And we were going, this is absolutely amazing. You know, and it's almost like, I, don't, I honestly don't think if we had played that Manchester Ritz gig when it was meant to have been played, we'd have had the same appreciation of it does that make sense massively i yeah. um i've been going to gigs obviously all my life but i've seen this new kind of it's like a different vibe or a different feel um i went to a show only last week uh and it's for nostalgia reasons but limp biscuit because they're just entertaining oh, yeah. they're fun they haven't been in the uk for years and i felt like everybody knew that 
they probably didn't think they were ever going to get to this gig because it had been rescheduled and rescheduled again. Yeah. And you just saw this appreciation. And even the band seemed more humble and more appreciative of the fact that people have come out and spent money. And some people have really suffered during the pandemic and kind of got a lot of anxiety and separation anxiety from being away from home because they're so used to like being secure now and locked up. And honestly, I've seen a real difference in bands. It feels like they're playing their hearts out. It feels like there's a, uh, every venue I'm going to at the moment is rammed and it feels so good again that, you yeah. know, a, ba a band like Tool or Metallica, I would only ever get to see every five or six years because yeah. they're that big. You can mm -hmm. see them every year right now. Yeah. They're back out there and they're doing it. And it's, it feels like the best. I know it sounds like a granddad, but it feels like the best time. I'm looking at the download lineup, 2000 Trees, Slam Dunk, and I'm like, it feels like a the best time again to be out there. I agree with you. And I think people are really appreciative. I agree with you too. I think the bands, one, one thing that was always a pet hit of us in therapy was, especially myself and Michael, where we come from, it was extremely difficult, 1989, the early 90s, to be a band from the north of Ireland when the troubles were on, to get gigs anywhere. Yeah, never mind outside the country. So we always had a great deep seated appreciation of playing live. And one thing that we could never understand was, and I, I say this to quite a lot of people that talk to me in interviews, you would not believe the amount of musicians that I personally know that hate touring. That if they could get away with being on front covers, being in the charts and making records, but never having to set foot on stage again, they would do it. And I could never, ever, ever understand that. One of the guys, I won't name names, one band, it was a huge indie band a few years ago. It had only been going six or seven months. They got a record deal. Their debut album was number one in the UK, number one in Australia, top five in America. And one of the guys that was my guitar tech, he got offered a lot of money to go and work with him. So he, he left there and went to work with him. And I met him for a drink a few weeks here. And he said, they were in America playing these enormous venues. And all of them were talking about, they couldn't wait to get home. And... They just wanted to start their own businesses up with the money they'd made so far with this one debut album. And I got really angry and I thought, you know, they don't deserve to be no, it's depressing I mean, to hear. To their own, but it was really depressing. You know, I thought, if you go and play in front of two and a half thousand people in LA and they've all bought tickets and they've been dreaming about this gig for months, for you to sit on a bus backstage and go, I want to be home. I can understand people get homesick and they're only human. Yeah. But, you know, it's... What we get a chance to do, there's, I think, um, was it Stephen Pinker famously said years ago, he worked it out, the chance of making it in the music business was one in 250,000. And oh, that, yeah. that's by getting a record deal and getting to play beyond 100 people in the pub. You know, that, that's kind of making it. That's not even to be the Beatles, that's to be the guy. So for you to be given that chance is amazing. So I think what COVID and what the lockdown has done was a lot of bands have had to sit at home and went, I, you know, I remember that time I was backstage in Vienna moaning because they didn't deliver the right pasta or they didn't have look as it. I got here, this was an outrage. And then it makes you think, you know, because we always have this in joke with the band when we see people do that, but they do and they do it an awful lot. And I think maybe coming back after a couple of years away has made people realize that, you know, maybe this was a really good thing that you had going and the people that put you there, you shouldn't forget them. And you know what? Uh, and I've said this, I sometimes feel like I repeat myself too much on this podcast, but it's a point that I really try and get across is you can tell being a member of the audience or in the crowd when a band's heart's not in it. 
And I think bands don't realize this. And I've seen bands that go on the cash grab tour and Mm. they don't even travel together because they don't really get on, but they're doing it because they want a big paycheck at the end. And they must be oblivious because it's so fucking transparent when I'm in the crowd watching them. There's no emotion. They're just going through the motions, ticking off the set list. Thanks very much. See you again next. And it's fucking awful. When you spend a lot of money on tickets now, gigs are expensive. Merch is expensive. When you give up your time and a band are just, just like robots, it's nothing worse for a fan. It's like, it feels like a kick in the teeth. It is, and I hate that because um, I'll talk to Neil and Arvan, Neil Cooper about this, and we just we decided that the term was contempt. It is treating the audience with contempt. Now, a lot of those very same bands will rightly so talk about the government treating its citizens with contempt. You're kind of on a minuscule scale doing the same thing. You've got your own little empire, which is the concert theatre. You've got everyone running around after you, making sure you've got all the things you want, and then you're not really feeling it. So you go on stage, and, and I've seen this with my own eyes. What's the shortest set we can do tonight? They'll ask the tour manager. The tour manager will say you can do 50 minutes. They'll go on five minutes late to cut that down to 45. And then there'll be two members of the band spend, either spend the whole time glancing at the shoes or glancing at the side of the stage complaining. And it's like that they've got another maybe three or four weeks this to go. Why bother? Like, yeah. why bother? <laughs> so, so why do you think, and I've recently had some of my idols on this podcast, and I'm a massive fan of Incubus. I think they're oh, yeah. just an incredible band. Uh, and Feeder, and I've had Grant Nicholas and Brandon Boyd from Incubus on. And the thing is with those bands, they've been going over 20, 25 years, mm-hmm. and genuinely they still feel like they're putting out their debut. And I put that with you as well. I'm not just saying it because you're here now. The fact that you've got a, a new record label, a brand new album coming out, you're still hungry. Why do you think you never got to that point where you're looking at your shoes or you're you're just thinking, fucking hell, let's get this tour out of the way? Is it is it just because you're so grateful for what you've got? Partly. I think that's one of the things. There's another two things I think are important. I mean, at this stage, after over three decades, definitely very grateful. But the groundwork for that was done... And myself and Michael were those kids where from the age of 12, music saved our lives. And yeah. I know Neil, who joined a bit later, the original drummer five was the same. It's like the minute we could afford to buy records, we bought them constantly. When everyone else was outside on a sunny day, we were inside listening to Joy Division or Michael's case and Lizzie and Motorhead, uh, Nuclear Assault, whatever he says, to it. And then whenever we go on tour, we still buy new records and we still listen to new music. And that is important because a lot of bands maybe quite a few people in bands that are artistic are maybe good at two or three things and whichever one gets them where they want to go is what they'll pursue yeah i've never wanted to play golf with elton john you know i've never wanted to hang out with matt damon i've just always wanted to play the music i love and travel and i know michael's exactly the same and then the second one is it's um i think a lot of it has got to do with your background so, I mean, myself and Michael worked really, really hard for this band and we still work really hard. And that's given us a great deal of satisfaction. So I've, I've always said, if anyone that knows the story of the band, you know, we had an album in 94 called Trouble Gun that sold. It's now sold a few million worldwide. At the time, it was a global success. Made us kind of a name on mainstream rock everywhere in the world. Then it kind of backfired on us. We made different, difficult, different, different difficult albums that sort of lost a bit of our fan base but we didn't split up and we kept going and there's been ups and downs ever since. But before Trouble Gun, we had four, four and a half years of driving ourselves around, 
plan to two and three people, self-releasing records, self-financing records that we released. But, and all that served us in good stead because it made, made us realize that we wanted, this is what we wanted to do. And that is quite a good learning curve because a lot of bands wouldn't have made it past the first two or three hurdles I've just mentioned. A lot of bands go, let's get a record deal. No one's interested, split the band up. Let's put out a record ourselves. It's going to cost you 600 quid. Let's split the band up. And once you've jumped through all those hoops to get to a certain place, then you've, I think it's a really good life skill. And we've, that's almost like to use like a working class term. It's an apprenticeship, really. Yeah. And it's, we've now got our trade and, you know, our trade can vary. Sometimes people want us to play a small club. Sometimes they want to play an outdoor festival. But we've kind of got the skills and we've got the hunger for it. And do you know what? There's bands out there, bands like Biffy Clyro. Everyone thinks that they like, why are they headlining Download? And why have they got this main stage and touring this? Those guys one year did about 265 shows in the back of a van, mm-hmm. you know, over 20 years ago. They worked their asses off. Yeah. They did that venue that only had six people turn up. And yeah. that's why they're still going now and writing incredible albums. There's bands that are manufactured or given a huge deal and they're pushed to the top. And within a year, they just they just kind of buckle because it's just too much. And they haven't, it feels like a kid that's been fed the silver spoon. It feels like they've just been given everything on a plate. Yeah. And I, I think it's hard then for those guys to survive because you appreciate everything more in life if you work for it, don't you? Oh, you do. Um, they, you do. And the Biffy Clowers are a really good case in point. I've got a funny story about them as well. Like, I, I, like, I like them a lot. Yeah. And we knew them years ago. Now they... Well, our tour manager at the time worked with us and with Biffy Clyro. And Biffy Clyro were playing in Cambridge um, years ago and they played in a small venue, which is now gone, called the Boat Race. It's tiny. It holds about 100 people. Oh, wow. And I went down to see them there and it was it was packed. And then the second time I went to see them was about, I think, about a year and a half later. And they were playing the Junction, which is 950 people, sold out in advance. The record was in the charts. And I, I went to say hello after the gig and they said, oh, come on on the tour bus. So I went on the tour bus. And nothing had changed. There were still the same people. And then they said, uh, how are you getting back? I said, I'm going to go to grab a cab now. And they said, no, we'll, we'll drop you off. And I, live, I, live, I live in a tiny little village, right? There's hardly room to get a tour bus down the street. And I told the bus driver this. And they go, no, we'll be all right. So at about one in the morning, Biffy Claro drove this huge tour bus right down this little village in Cairbridge to drop me at my front door. And I just thought, you know, that kind of sums them up as people. Yeah. And I still, I still love them to this day. And you know, when I get a chance to go and see them as well. They're amazing. And they're one of my favorites out there. And I think what works really well with therapy is the fact that you did have that massive moment and, you know, Scream Age and all these songs that were on radio constantly, everyone absolutely was blown away. And it's that kind of textbook album. Some people go back to their, you know, what's your favorite album in the nineties and the two thousands. And there's certain albums, but for me, the people around my age, everybody absolutely adores that album and it's their go-to album for being a guitarist. I remember the first time I ever picked up a guitar, I wanted to learn, um, what would it have been? Going Nowhere, you know, just the, oh, yeah. the little stab. And I, I just sat there learning it. And it's that album that I can now put on today and truly it sounds like it was recorded yesterday. The production mm. is timeless. The songs are timeless. The choruses are timeless. And it must be amazing to know that you left that kind of mark on the music industry, like bands like Nirvana, Nevermind, and Green Day with Dookie. That's your, that's your kind of, I think it's your biggest achievement and people will 
have that album forever. I know. Thank you very much. No, I do agree with that. And, you know, because quite often people say, do you ever get fed up with people always knowing you for the one album? At least we have the one album that people know us for. And we're really grateful for that. I mean, I remember Lemmy from Motorhead said years ago, the same question. Uh, a journalist asked him, you ever sick of being asked about the Ace of Spades? And he went, at least we have the Ace of Spades. Yeah. And it's true. You know, it's like we always have that one album. And because of that album, we're still going today. You know, we might not be playing in certain parts of the world to as big a crowd as we did then, but that album enabled us to get a worldwide fan base, which means that we can play across the world to a fan base. And that fan base, I'm forever grateful for because it's kept us afloat to this day. And it's a great record as well. You know, I look back at some of our records and I think, oh, we shouldn't have done this. We made a mistake there. But there's a handful of them that I think are absolutely timeless and Trouble Gum's one of them. It is. It's it's unbelievable. And I've been lucky enough to be sent from Marshall the Hard Cold Fire album uh, promo, so I've been able to listen to it. And I'm not just saying this because you're here, and I've spent the week up to this interview listening to it. It sounds fucking epic. Like, the guitars and the drums and the production, it's not too polished that when I go and see you, then it doesn't sound like the same band. It sounds like a band that could be in a garage playing these fucking riffs and these songs and singing the harmonies and everything, that when I then go and see you in a small club or I see you at a festival, it's still the same band. And that's what I love about music. I don't want a over-polished, incredible sounding album that when I go and see you, you can't replicate it. I think you're right. And I think that might be also with us. It was a couple of things. It was after lockdown and I mean, anyone that knows therapy, you know, we make different records. Yeah. <laughs> and we always, we, there, we always have a trouble gum, high anxiety, semi-detached, hardcore fire in us, which is full of short melodic bangers. But we also have a tendency to meander stuff like our first album, Baby Teeth, things like Suicide Pact You First, things like uh, Crooked Timber, where we discover kraut rock and dub and, and we go off. And I think with this record, I mean, you were mentioning earlier about Trouble Gum with Chris Shit with the production and Nowhere, trying to learn it on the guitar. I remember when we worked with Chris Sheldon for the first time, he said to us, uh, one of the things I'll always remember was a lot of the earlier records for therapy, the guitars were more complicated, but I'd written a song called Scream Major and we decided to go down that route of having kind of melodic therapy songs. And we had the song Nowhere and the original intro was like some kind of convoluted arpeggiated kind of thing. And Chris Sheldon's going, no, because this is what we love about me. So blonde, I went, no, 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 no. Make it, make it simple. And I was going, okay. And then I think I looked at me, said, make it really simple. And I got an A chord, and I went, that's it. And I went, really? <laughs> and that's what makes the song what it is. And I think with Hard Cold Fire as well, with 24 songs. And he said, what kind of record do you want? And we said, well, to make out of these songs. And we said, we don't want a lockdown record. People have suffered enough. Yeah. You know, we, we are known for melancholy and being a bit sort of slightly grayscale in our outlook. So he said, well, why don't you pick the punchy short songs and make them more focused? So we, we picked the 10 out of the 24, 25 we had. And he came and he sat in with us when we were playing. I mean, he did exactly the same thing. Went, too long. No, cut that bit in two. No, no. <laughs> I had some guitar solo on the song. too many notes. He says, no, make it more simple. And he was right. Because when we played the album back, it's like 31 minutes of bang, 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 with melody. And it sounds, as you said, like it could be therapy in a garage. And then that was really refreshing for us. And we just thought when we finished it, we went away for a while, as we always do come back listen to it again and that's exactly the record we wanted to make at this moment in time chris sheldon for me obviously known for working with <laughs> Clara, who we mentioned today uh feeder who we've mentioned today but also foo fighters and 
one of my favorite bands of all time, Ruben. And there's something, okay. there's something about his ear that I don't know. I can tell a Chris Sheldon record now. Mm -hmm. And I think he's a genius. And the way that you're prepared as a band, because some people are very headstrong about the songs they write. And as a, a songwriter, sometimes the personality can be, this is my song. I'm not going to fucking let anyone try and change it, you know. Mm -hmm. But it sounds that you were very willing to let Chris guide you and have his input because you respect him so much. You know, he he, he is, for me, one of the best producers out there. No, I agree with you. And there's quite a lot, you know, quite a lot of modern records have got the Chris Sheldon sound. It's His sound seems to be coming back into vogue again. But I think what really helped me with, I know initially, because we kind of self-produced the first two albums and the first major label one, we were so nervous that we actually worked with a sound guy. Harvey Burrell, he did an album called Nurse. So Chris was the first ahem proper producer that we got. But then what I remembered was um, one of my favorite bands of all times, Joy Division, one of my favorite albums is Unknown Pleasures. And I'll never forget reading that whenever they got that back, because enjoyed, you know, that record, Unknown Pleasures, is timeless. It is like a sculptured cathedral of sound, but they wanted to sound like the Stooges. So when they got the record back from Martin Hammett, he had put all these echoes, delays, separation, uh, lots of dubby effect on it. And they all hated it. They were all driving back in the car, listening to the cassettes going, this is rubbish. It doesn't sound like the studios. <laughs> but, you know, the, Martin Hammett made that record what it is. And I doubt very much if they'd got their own way and it sounded like the first Stooges album, it would have had the same impact on people as it did. And sometimes if you're lucky and you get the right producer at the right time, and we've worked with Chris a lot over the years, and we would consider him a friend as well as a producer. It, there's just a little bit of alchemy can happen and it, it sort of works really well with the band. So we're always very open-minded. I mean, we, if there's something that we've done that we really, really want to keep in the song, Chris will listen to us. Um, but, you know, he's we, we get him in, we pay him to be objective. Yeah. And, and we trust him, which means that he's not going to say anything because it's trendy. He's not going to say anything to be contrary. He'll say it because it'll serve the song and that's what we want to do. And he wants to be proud, doesn't he? He's putting his name on a record. He doesn't want to be like, well, this is pretty shit, but I got paid. He's not that type of guy. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you shouldn't be in the business if you have that outlook for the a lot. There are a lot of people that are, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So with this new album, how long have you been sitting on it? How long has it been done and finished? Because so, so some of the bands I've had on recently, because of COVID and the way it has been, some bands have had an album ready for a year because of the way it's been vinyl being pressed and this and mm. that, you know. Yeah, I mean, this has been over a year. We, we finished it... We went into the studio, what's this, 23? So we went into the studio November 21 for three weeks. And it was Marshall Studios in Milton Keynes. We went in with Chris. And then we touched up a few of the vocals and little guitar bits in Chris's home studio. So that was finished by December 2021. And then last year, we had over 70 gigs that had to be completed because of COVID. And the first one was the Greatest Hits Tour. And then the second one that we'd been talking to doing to balance out the aesthetic of the band was the Love Your Early Stuff tour. And there was nowhere in that that we could see to release the album because we wouldn't have been able to tour it properly. So then we thought earlier on this year, first thing, and we thought, well, we've just finished tour in December in 2022. So there's no point putting out an album in January. So it made perfect sense to put it out in May, just before summer festivals. And then that means September through to December, we can really can it. I think what's really good as well, and I'm sure in a band for over 30 years, you're in that point where maybe playing Scream Major again and again is incredible and you see the crowd react, but to bring new music in, new blood into the set list, 
mm. must be lovely as a band because it's exciting. It's it's seeing how it goes down, see how the crowd reacts. Hopefully they start singing along as the gigs go on and the album's out longer. So it must yeah. feel quite, I don't know, I feel like fresh air for a, a songwriter to be able to, to not just keep playing the same songs. It does. I mean, and every single time we release an album, we have a tendency to play the complete album in the set. We do tend to play for an hour and 45 minutes. Most of our albums come in at anything between 39 and about 45, 50 minutes. Yeah. So we can still play the entire new album and then complementary tracks. So we were looking at Hard Cold Fire and we thought, well, what could we do? Because I'll, I'll, tell, I'll come back to this in a minute. There was one gig where we didn't play Scream Major. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. But wow. we, um, we could say, okay, um, this year we've got Hard Cold Fire, which is 31 minutes long. So that gives us another hour, really, and a bit more to play with. And we thought, well, Short Sharp Shock came out um, 30 years ago this year. So why don't we chuck in stuff like Totally Random Man and other B-sides of that? The single turn was on an EP called Face the Strange. Why don't we put some tracks in like that? With a, a song that charted called Local Mantra, it went to number 13 in the charts, so we didn't really play very much. We could put that in. And then, you know, also with an album called Semi-Detached, which is 25 years old this year. Is it 25? I bought that the day it came yeah, out. Oh, man. Fucking hell. Wow. So we're thinking of maybe throwing in Tightrope Walker and Straight Life off that album. I and queued then up at our price. That shows my age. Wow. My, price. Price, my God. Wow. But the, um, <laughs> the other thing about the time, there was one time we didn't play Screen Major, and it was in Hamburg, and it was in the uh, Nust Hall, K-N-U-S-T, and it was a sold-out gig. And um, we were touring the Brief Crack of Light tour in 2012. And we decided we're not going to play Scream Major. And that was the first night of the tour. And our German promoter is a really good friend of ours. He's looked after the band for ages. And he was very excited. The gig was sold out. And we turned up and we, we played the full set. And then we came off. And then they were shouting for more. So we went on. We did the encore. And we didn't do Scream Major in the set. And whenever we came back off stage, at the end, the guy's yawning. He's our promoter. He came screaming into the dressing room going, you, you must go out there and play Scream Major. You must, you must. Going, We're not going to play. Went, Please don't do this. You must go out there and play it there. They're all complaining. And we didn't play it. And I didn't realise this, but you said afterwards, he came in and said, everyone was at the bar going, bastards, why didn't they play Scream Major? Fucking hell. But yeah, but I mean, I, I think that might be just, because um, Trouble Gun was a huge album in Germany. I could imagine, yeah. I could imagine maybe in the UK, we would get away with it a lot more because some people are a bit more obsessed about some other albums as well. You should have gone back and played it 12 times for a set, just in one after another, then to say sorry know. and make up for it. <laughs> we did once. We played Bradford once, and we had uh, we, it was, we were really excited because we'd sold out this gig in Bradford, and it was in the Nurse album, was that? And do you, do you ever hear the story about Aerosmith during their cocaine years with her with uh, Lightning Strikes, the song? No. Please tell me this. They used to do so much cocaine, uh, and they always ended the song with, a, I think it's called Lightning Strikes. Right. And it's the best song in the set. And the tour manager one night said, this place that we're playing, Tampa, Miami, wherever it is, has always been a bit quiet. The audience is always a little bit reserved. Why don't you open with Lightning Strikes tonight? And the audience will go nuts. And then you've got them on your side. So, the, so they went out and cooked out their minds, began with Lightning Strikes. And the singer of Aerosmith, Stephen Tyrant, thank you, good night, and walked out. <laughs> He saw out of his mind, he thought it was the end of the set. That's incredible. And the tour manager had to push him back on stage. So we got to Bradford for this sold out show. <laughs> and we said, let's do lightning strikes. So we opened with something like Teeth Grinder or something like that and ran on stage. And we, we knew what we were doing. We were there, we played Teeth Grinder. Thank you, good night. Walked off. Fucking brilliant. <laughs> but to the complete bewilderment from the audience. <laughs> 
<laughs> so how's it feel now with Marshall Records? Because every guitarist, every kid grew up with Marshall. It's a it's a amazing name. The fact they've got this record label and got some great acts on there already, and they're growing at such a pace. For a guitarist like yourself, it must be pretty awesome to see the logo on your your album and everything. Oh, I know it is. I mean, I, I do remember the very first time when we signed to NM Records, and we got a budget, uh, and we were on a major label, and we were rehearsing in a place in Ireland called Carlo, and I'd wanted a Marshall stack for a long time, and I used to have these little Fender combos with loads of effects pedals, and it, they they were great sounding, but I'd always wanted a Marshall just because I thought they'd be slightly beefier for the music therapy wanted to play, and I didn't tell the rest of the band. And I'd, or I'd got our management and said, can you put me in touch with Marshall? Can I buy myself a Marshall stack? So we got it delivered to this rehearsal. It was an old mansion house in Carlo that they'd let us have a room for peace and quiet. And I remember it arrived and I went and set it all up. And I remember Fife, the drummer at the time, just walked into the rehearsal room and went, what the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> and I've played them ever since. And, uh, you know, whenever we signed to the label, you know, we, we, we were, I mean, I must admit, a bit of backstory. Steve Tannett, the NR guy that runs Marshall Records, he looked after us when we released an album called Suicide Packed You First. He was the NR guy, and then, then he went and did something else. He's back. So that made it easier for us to sign to them because he's a good lad. But yeah, it's been brilliant. They've been really, really good. They're signing a lot of good bands at the minute, too. Really good. Then they're getting like some really, like, you see these bands that are just getting. Overnight success, they're getting really big, really quick. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's fucking awesome to see. They're very open-minded because whenever we signed, there, was, there wasn't as many bands and a lot of them were a bit more traditional rock, but they've got Nova Twins, you know, they've got Jen and the Degenerates now. And people like that, they're incredible bands. And they're always, every time we're talking to them, they're looking at signing more people. But it's really refreshing for us. You know, the Amplifier thing uh, is good for me. You know, they were very kind and they got me a few amps for two and one for the house. But also the studio they've built is phenomenal. They've built the studio down and the, they've got this whole complex now where they've got the warehouse that makes and sells the amps. And then they've got a booking agency and they have their own studio, which is a great studio. And the guys worked there, Ollie and Adam, they were fantastic at helping Chris Sheldon when we worked there. So that was all really, really good. And also meant as a guitarist, purely selfish from a guitarist point of view. Um, you know, if I wanted any particular kind of martial amp while we were in there, somebody would just go and wheel it in for me from the, How cool from is the that warehouse next door. I hope it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's like a kid in the sweet shop, like go and get me a JCM 900 now. Yeah, and it was like it was like I was going, Well, who owns this one? Because a lot of them were in for repair. Yeah, and I'd go, Oh, there was one with the target on it. Who owns that? Let me guess. Yeah, that's Paul Wellers. Fucking hell, who owns that one? Bless him, it was Jeff Beck's. Uh, there was a Lemmy amp in that, God bless him at the time, and then there was another one which was brilliant. There was one in red leather, and I said, who owns the red leather, Marshall Stack? And then it's Yngwie Malmsteins. He wanted it, He wanted the amp to be the same colour as his Ferrari. <laughs> Fucking hell. Jesus. So your demand, have you got any ideas to have like a, a custom, nice little stack made up or some artwork on it? You've got to have something, surely, with the therapy logo or the teeth or something. Yeah, well, I, I was quite boring so far. All I've had is seen with the white Marshall font. I've got it red yeah. black. So it's oh, nice. black on black. But that's not very imaginative. Yeah, so I think maybe like the teeth grinder or something like that might be quite good. Because they'll do that for you in the shop. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Mark, I might have to actually think about that now when I go away. When I see you live now, I'll be like, yeah. I made that happen. <laughs> yeah. And how's the rest of the year looking? Um, I, I, Are you kind of now looking to tour? The, I know you've got some sign-ins um, to go along in May with the release of the album, but are you looking at trying to announce quite a few dates to try and get out there and play these songs? 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we'll have a massive big year after the summer. I mean, the albums come out, we'll do these signing, four signing shows. We've got some shows in Belgium and Holland and a couple in France, uh, but all the festivals are only beginning to come in now. We've got one in Norway, one in the Czech Republic. We've got Stone Dead in the UK with uh, the answer, Black Star Riders and all that. But I think what's likely going to happen is we'll get, we'll pick up all these festivals as we go along. But then I think when it gets to September, we'll literally get in a van or a bus and that'll be off until December. All That's awesome. Europe. I can't wait to see you guys again. I saw you, like I said, at the start of the interview a couple of years ago, maybe it might be three years ago now, before lockdown at the rescue rooms and it was rammed, it was hot, it was full and the sound guy knows what he's doing, and it just sounded great. And it was like, that's the gigs I want to see you in. Yeah, no, that was great. That I always like not in a lot. My brother lives up there, so you yeah. were a chance to see family. But that was a good gig. That wasn't the one where the guy banged his head in the barrier, was it? Was that the year before? I think that I, didn't happen when I was there. Oh, I was there. Oh, yeah, some, some poor guy. And this is the thing, when you get to our age, there are always people in their 40s. You know, my age, and you know, I'm, I'm in my 50s now, so there are people my age. They decide after five pints that they're going to stage dive. Fucking hell. <laughs> and some personal, so it must have been just the year before. So he was in the rescue rooms too. And it was rammed. And as he as he jumped, I think he tried to do a flip, but he had banged oh. his head on the metal barrier. Christ. And they, they, he kind of, we, we stopped the gig and he came to. But then he didn't want to leave because he had a really prime position at the front of the stage. And he was fighting off the man. He's going, I'm okay, I'm okay. Mate, you need to be looked at. You Loads know? of concussion. Fucking everyone, everyone else was going, get on with it. You know, they just wanted to do the gig. And eventually they took him off and he must have been all right because about three songs before the end, he was back at the front. Christ. It must be awesome as well looking out because you kind of have those. I recently went to... Um... Have you heard the band Sleep Token? Yes, yes. Yeah, they're really fucking blown up really quickly. And what's really good is they attract all the old rockers that love all the signature and time changes and the the kind of nostalgia sound of these guitars. But they've also got a fresh new crowd of young kids. And I'm sure when you're doing therapy shows, you see the faces that you remember from 20 years ago at places like the Wolverhampton Civic Hall and Rock City. But you also see the new generation of fans that are coming through that might be their kids that they brought along that then start getting into it. And it must be great because when I went to your show, there was such a variety in the crowd. It was young, old, loads of girls, loads of guys. And it was such a nice mixed bag of people. No, I agree. And my son, he's um, he's now twenty four. He's he's left home a while, and he's he's into music himself. He likes electronica and stuff. But he's come to see us a few times. You know, rock music's not really a thing. But he says the same thing. He said he's always surprised by how varied our audience is because he kind of thought it's his dad's band. Every everyone's going to be his dad's age and all that old rockers. And he said there was people there his age and younger. There was goths. There was really straight looking people and. Uh, you know, just look that come from work and stuff like that. But you know, it's I, I like that. It's it's, it's really good. Good. it is. And you're looking out, looking as you say, looking out at the gigs over the years, and it, it changes from place to place. Obviously, because therapy means more in, in certain territories than it does in others. And you can always, we always know we're in a certain country by dress codes and by the kind of demographic of the crowd. But one thing that is a constant is that it's not just all people our age, which is lovely to see. That's all. And I think if it was all people your age, like I'm 41 now. And I was at a gig, Limp Bizkit, only a week ago, just for nostalgia reasons. And my back was hurting an hour in. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. I have to go to the bar and sort of stand by the sound guy and try and look cool. But I was like, I'm not, I can't do it anymore. Like, download this year is four days long. And I just don't know how I'm going to manage. 
You need one of those little portable, the sticks with the seat on top of it that you can kind of like cameraman use. It's so uncool, isn't it? It's so uncool, but I'm like, I just can't do it. And I realize now I'm like, God, I'm jealous of those 20 year olds at the front who are just having the time of their life. (laughs) Uh, You you can get away with the stick. I think you can do that. That'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, my last question for you today and what I do on this podcast, you might remember this from last time, is I ask you to choose the outro piece of music so you get to choose the last song that's played on the podcast. Um, it can be any song by any band, but usually a song that means something to you. So when this is all edited and the world's ready to listen to it, that final song that's played is always different because 270 guests have always chose a different song. What would you love to be today's outro song that means a lot to you? Um well, let's see what I'm going to listen to quite a lot at the minute. Um, so it would have to be something up-tempo. So I would say it would be Requiem by Killing Joke. I went to see them at the Royal Albert Hall um, about three weeks ago. It's a band I've loved since I've been 13 years of age. They never disappoint. They get, like therapy, they get a really, really mixed audience. And to see them triumphantly play in the Royal Albert Hall sold out and for it to sound so good. And Requiem was the track that got me into them. And it's melancholy, but powerful at the same time. And if it was the end of the world and that was playing, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Fucking hell, that's one of the best answers I've had on 270 episodes. Nice, short, (laughs) snappy, but a really good meaning. And do you know what? What I normally do then is I go in, I choose the track the, um, the guest has chosen, and then I'll go down this kind of rabbit hole for the next week of just listening to Kitty Joke now all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I haven't heard them for years. It must be 10 years since I've listened to them, so I'll end up being obsessed with them now for the next few weeks. Yeah, well, that first album, Killing Joke by Killing Joke, black and white cover. Unbelievable. It's timeless, timeless record. Yeah. Honestly, dude, it's been great having you back on the podcast, and I really appreciate your time. I'm really looking forward to people hearing Hard Cold Fire. I think... I think it's got a bit of for everything. It's it's not, oh yeah, that's just them playing the same songs. It's it's raw. It's got some really nice polished sounds. It's got a bit of everything, but it's still therapy. And it's, I love short albums. Maybe it's because I drive a lot now and put albums on, but 31 minutes of just pure fucking rocking for me is everything. So I wish you all the luck with the tours and the album release and everything else because it's fucking awesome. Oh, thanks very much, man. That means a lot. Appreciate it. And thanks for having us on. It's, it's you're welcome whenever you want uh hopefully our paths will cross and we'll meet up at a festival or a gig in the uh, towards the end of the year but um i would love to have a pint with you and uh yeah rejoice again fantastic fella. thank you so there it is there's me and andy touching base again and talking all things therapy What an amazing guy, what an amazing interview, and honestly, the new album you need to check out. It's out right now, so go and buy a copy, go and see the band if they're playing it anywhere near you, or just go and listen to it now. Honestly, Hard Cold Fire is easily one of my favourite albums this year. Like I said, I love these short, banging tracks with great choruses, great harmonies, and that's what Therapy do best. There's a reason why they've been going so long and still have such an amazing cult following. 
If you've enjoyed today's episode, as always, please go on markandme.com. On there, there's links to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And all I ask, because I don't charge money for this podcast, is you to share it or retweet it or put it on Instagram or just like it. It might help the algorithm to get more people listening. And who knows? There's a lot of people out there that have grown up with this music and might have forgot about therapy or want a reminder of just how great they are. They see on your feed that you've liked it or shared it. The next thing you know, they're listening to Mark and Me every week. And that is publicity that money doesn't buy. And I can't do that. I'm a one-man team. I rely on you guys to share it. So please, if you've enjoyed today's episode, share, share, share. I do have a Patreon account. This also allows me to travel the country, do festivals, go to Q&As, attend screenings. And the only way I can do this is with my support via Patreon. Also on there, each and every month, I give away an exclusive episode just for you guys. I'm so excited to announce the next episode next week for you guys at home. And also, if you're on Apple Podcasts, you can hit the subscribe button. And for $3.99 a month, you also get access to those exclusive episodes. I give you badges. I give you a welcome pack, stickers, and so much more. I'll be back in only a few days' time with another brand new episode. So until then, listen to therapy, look after yourself, and I'll speak to you all very soon. Oh, oh, oh.